Good morning, High Point. My name is Femi Shikoya. I have the honor of reading scripture for us this morning. Today's scripture reading will be from Ezekiel chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. Ezekiel chapter 14, starting from verse 1. Some of the elders of Israel came to me and sat down in front of me. Then the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, these men have set up idols in their hearts and put wicked stumbling blocks before their faces. Should I, let the, should I let them inquire of me at all? Therefore speak to them and tell them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. When any Israelite sets up idols in his heart and puts a wicked stumbling block before his face and then goes to a prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him myself in keeping with his great idolatry. I will do this to recapture the heart of the people of Israel who have all deserted me for their idols. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, this is what the sovereign Lord says, repent, turn from your idols and renounce all your detestable practices. When any Israelite or any alien living in Israel separates himself from me and sets up idols in his heart and puts a wicked stumbling block before his face and then goes to a prophet to inquire of me, I the Lord will answer him myself. I will set my face against that man and make him an example and a byword. I will cut him off from my people. Then you will know that I am the Lord. And if the prophet is enticed to utter a prophecy, I, the Lord, have enticed that prophet. And I will stretch out my hand against him and destroy him from among my people Israel. They will bear their guilt. The prophet will be as guilty as the one who consults him. Then the people of Israel will no longer stray from me, nor will they defy themselves anymore with all their sins. They will be my people and I will be their God, declares the sovereign Lord. It's the word of the Lord written for his people. Amen, thanks Femi. All right, as I go through um, the sermon, I just want to encourage you, I'm going to, we're going to try to have time for AMA, ask me anything today, so go to highpointchurch.org slash live. You can put in your questions. You can do that just on your phone in the service here, too, not just online. Um, whether you're not a Christian, concern, considering putting your trust in Christ, or already a Christian, one of the things that occurs to all people relative to the fact that Christian faith says that God is a personal God is that the belief that if God is a personal God, that we want that God to speak to us, especially into the specific decisions and actions that we have to take for our lives. We'll reason, we often reason something like this, whether we're a Christian or not. If God loves us, he would want us to make the right decision so our life will go well, and he would want us to know what to do, so therefore, he should speak to us, right? Now, there's two sort of key times in our lives where we emotionally really, really, really want God to speak to us, and I call these um, high conversion moments when we're converting like high potential into specific actual. The, the clearest example of this for me would be like getting married, right? If you're not married and you get married, you're going from like maybe 200 million options to one permanently. And so that's, that can lead to a lot of stress for people because they're like, am I making the right decision? Especially if you think not like a Christian, even though you are one, but you think like an individual expressivist, like in a worldly way. Like what's most important for me to be happy is for me to express my inner self. And what if I, my inner self doesn't like this person in five years? I've like walled off the other 200 million options. Yes, you have. Grow up you know? Um, but like, but there's a lot of, there's a lot of tension there. Or like if you, if you graduate from high school, and you want to go to college. Well, which one? And when you go to one, you're not going to the other ones. Even though you can switch careers, like sometimes you, 
if you go into a particular career, especially if you're like upper middle class or something, you invest a lot to get to the professional level where you can do that thing. It is kind of hard to like switch into a whole other one. Whenever we make decisions where we're converting potential into actual, it can be really stressful and we have a lot of fear of missing out, right? The second is what I always call could go either way moments, indeterminate decisions. Like decisions where you've got to make a call, you've used all the wisdom and knowledge that you know, and you know that you could do either thing and you don't know how it will turn out. As a parent of teenagers, that's what I normally think of. Like if I'm having a problem with one of my kids, I might go, okay, I could take the like super gracious approach and maybe they'd like realize how much I care for their well-being, and maybe they'll make the right decision on their own. Or I could take the tough approach, and maybe they'll realize they're being a stubborn dork, and they'll turn back. And in both cases, maybe not. Right? You give a lot of people grace, and they just, like, spit all over it. Like, read the Bible. That's what the people of God do when God is gracious to them, right? But when God is hard on them, do they learn better? Well, not really. Right? It's like, when you're dealing with other people— it's undetermined. And so you might want God to be like, well, God, will you tell me which to do? Because I could do either one. Both are as wise as I know how to be, and I don't know how they're going to turn out, right? Now, part of our desire for God to speak to us in this particular, in those spe specific places, is rooted in a decision-making fallacy that we get because we're actually super worldly, even though we think we're Christians, okay? Part of, part of the reason people struggle with Christianity, they think is because there's a problem with Christianity. The, the real problem is usually— they say that they're Christians, but the way their mind and heart and feelings and thoughts operate is an entirely worldly, godless way. They just don't realize it. They, they don't realize that you can't spray paint God onto like a steel life of worldliness and think it's going to work. It's not going to work, right? Now, what that means is the way we're really operating is this. We want to, we think that making the right decision, that is having clairvoyance about the future, knowing what would happen if we make a certain choice, and therefore being able to make the right choice— is more important than making the right kind of decision, with the wisdom God gives us, making that into the right decision by how we act after we make the decision, that's called godliness, and trusting God to work that decision for good, that's called faith, right? If you like faith, hope, and love, you could just do it this way, right? The right kind of decision is having the faith to choose what you believe is right under God, right? Making it work through godliness is really living in love in the decision that you've made. Right? And then, in hope, recognizing that God is the one who promises to work things for good, it's not really your job. And you see, when we think that, when we think clairvoyance is what we need from God, for him to just tell us what's going to happen so that we can manage our lives, we reverse the very nature of decision-making, the very nature of character formation, the very nature of the relationship between a creator and a creation. We flip everything around. And then we get really upset because what happens is God doesn't tell us. Here's an example of this. J.R.R. Tolkien wrote this to one of his sons in 1941. He said, nearly all marriages, even happy ones, are mistakes. In the sense that almost certainly in a more perfect world, or even a little bit more care in this imperfect one, both partners might be found more suitable mates. But the real soulmate is the one you're actually married to. Right? Does that make sense? So like, you get married to somebody and you think they're right for you. Are you going to meet somebody in your life that's clearly more right for you? probably more than once, right? 
it's because of the improvidence of how people— people fall in love because they're well-fitted to each other. They fall in love because their bodies are filled with hormones that want to make more humans, right? And so we convince ourselves that all kinds of people are good enough, even people who are terrible for us. And so what happens is we're drawn by natural affection to marry somebody who's available in the early fertile years of our lives, right? And the thing is, is that like, just statistically, you're probably just not going to come across your perfect match like personality-wise. So everybody's in an improvident marriage is what that means, right? So what does that mean? Does that mean that God failed you by not giving you the clairvoyance to know your perfect match somewhere in the world that you could have found and been perfectly happy and true love the rest of your life? No. No. The improvidence of your marriage is part of what will sanctify you, right? You could accept somebody who's not perfect for you and have just as happy a marriage. You could be perfectly matched to somebody and be a shallow idiot and still ruin it. Right? And so the reality is, is that choosing with the best wisdom that you have, living in such a way as to make the decision the right decision, that is in this case, actually loving your spouse as they are, helping them grow in sanctification while you're growing in sanctification, and trusting God to work out that which you can't work out, it's both better, it's better for you, for them, for everything, and displays God's glory in a way that would not be the case if you just got clairvoyance about who it is that would be the right fit for you. Does that make sense? Now, this creates a kind of dilemma, which is that um, how does God respond to people who want his predictions, but who refuse his directions? Right? How's God supposed to re relate to a human person like that? Because that's exactly what's happening in Ezekiel 14. There's a whole nation of people, right? And the leaders of those people come and sit before Ezekiel. That is, they're inquiring of the prophet. They want God to speak. Give them a special message for what to do in this particular moment. Right? They want God's predictions. But, but God's like, look, these people have set up idols in their hearts. They have wicked subway blocks before the faces, meaning they're holding on to sins they don't want to let go of. They won't listen to what I've actually told them, but they want me to talk to them. What is God supposed to do with people like that? And the answer this passage gives is in these verses, right? Therefore, speak to them and say, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. When any Israelite sets up an idol in his heart and puts a wicked stumbling block before his face and then goes to a prophet. Do you see the problem there? He does these two things, and then he adds to it that he goes to a prophet and asks for a word from me, right? Which makes it much more profane. He says, I, the Lord, will answer him myself in keeping with his great idolatry. I will do this to recapture the hearts of the people of Israel who have deserted me for their idols. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, this is what the sovereign Lord says, repent, turn from your idols, and renounce your detestable practices. You see, you don't get a special word. You get pointed back to his directions. That's what you get. The special word from the prophet, the, the prediction of God is this. Here's what I predict. You should go back and listen to what I already told you because you haven't listened to that yet. That's my prediction for you of what would be best. Go back and listen to what I already said, what I already told you, how I already said it, and trust me. Believe it. Throw the sin you're holding on to behind you and dethrone and tear down the idol that you've set up in your heart and actually trust me and actually obey. Follow me and then let me work out with my own predictive capacity through my own providence as the sovereign Lord what will be good for you and for all and to display my own glory. Right? So you could say something like this. God will refuse us situationally to capture our hearts permanently. That's how, like, the Bible—like, that's the, the most Bible way to say it. 
would be, the, would be in this situation. He's not, in that situation that they're in, he's not going to tell them what to do. He's going to refuse their request situationally. And it's, it's not because he's mean. It's not because he's angry. It's not because he's spiteful. Well, if you're going to be mean to me, I'm going to be mean to you. No, this is therapeutic. This is for their good. He's trying to save their lives. Right? So he's not going to give them the thing that's going to corroborate and push them further into their idolatry. He's going to try to move them backwards to face the thing that they've set up. And he's doing it so that he can capture their hearts permanently. One of the ways to say this in like modern language would be this. God won't reveal his secret will if you ignore his revealed will. God won't reveal his secret will to you if you don't, if you ignore his revealed will. Does that make sense? And he says he specifically does this to recapture our hearts. His ultimate goal is loving. He wants, he says, at the end of this, when this is all done, the result will be the people of Israel will no longer stray from me. Like, we'll have a relationship of love that won't be constantly broken by their fickleness. They also won't destroy and defile themselves with their sins. They'll be free of them, right? And then the result of them being my people and me being their God will actually be able to take place for their everlasting joy, for their permanent and complete good, and for their enjoyment of my everlasting and beautiful glory, right? That's his goal. Now, one of the ways to think is this, because I, listen, um, I have, I cannot tell you how many times a year I have this conversation, especially with people who are making those two big kinds of decisions. So I tend to have it a lot with younger people. But this is why I want every mentor to understand this. I want every small group leader to know this. I want every parent to know this. I want every kid to know this. I want everybody to understand this distinction. You have to have this clearly in your mind. God has two expressions of his wills. He doesn't have two different wills that are opposed to each other, but he has two expressions of his wills. One is the things in his will he's actually spoken and shown and told us. You could refer to that as his revealed will, right? And then there's the things that he has not told us, the things he has not shown us about himself, the things he has kept, in, kept secret and private either for specific reasons or for general reasons. And in, under revealed will, these are the things that we're actually responsible for. These are the assets that he's given us and the things that we're responsible to deal with and to apply and to use. So they are the basis of our stewardship, how we live our lives given the responsibilities he's given us. His secret will is God's withheld knowledge that he works out in his own providence. He's the only one who has to know this stuff, and he is the one working it out. So his revealed will consists of things like the moral commandments he's given us, his call that we repent of our sins and believe in Jesus as our Savior and Lord, right? The spiritual disciplines he's given us to operate to transform our character into godliness. The, all of Scripture— is a gift of him speaking and showing things to us that we can have and know as part of his revealed will. Christ's example, his commission to us to share the gospel with all people. And also naturally, theologically, what God does in our own conscience and that we really do know about what's right and wrong, and natural theology and natural law, things that we can know by reason that are right about how we should live in the world that are, that work together with these other things too as checks on them. There's an enormous amount that God has revealed about himself and my experience from being a pastor is that virtually none of his disciples have even begun to scratch the surface of studying and really understanding all that God has spoken and shown about himself. So even if you could say right now, Nick, I don't think of myself as setting up an idol in my heart or having a, like a sin that I just won't give up. Okay, but when it comes to hearing God's word, like knowing what he wants, knowing what would be best, have you really made yourself a student of all that he has revealed about himself? 
Because it's really insulting if we ignore all the stuff that he has shown and spoken and deliberately given us, knowing that we require it and need it, knowing that what is in what he's given us is the most relevant and important things for our lives, and for us to go to him for some clairvoyant word about something that we think we need to know about, which may very well be happening because we're ignoring everything he told us. Right? Now, his secret will are things like how he works things for good, how nations will rise and fall, how he, his, he affects the providences of the world, the truth that he hasn't told us about himself. There's more to know about God than what he said in the Bible, right? Also, how he's intervened in your life and who will win sports games, right? That's all in God's secret will. Like, he's not telling us. And so it's extremely futile for us to keep demanding God to tell us this and ignore this. And you can understand if God is in charge of caring for us, and we say, God, tell me this, tell me this, tell me this, or you're bad, or you're bad, or I will believe in you. He's like, listen, if you do that, I'm just going to refer you to this. That's what I'm going to do. Right? Now, prophecy, by its very nature, puts those two together. When God actually gives a prophecy, and prophecy is found in the Old Testament, it's also found in the New Testament. It's something that does happen through the work of the Spirit in the Church of God. And when that happens, what God does is he, he usually gives a little bit of his, of what is his secret, that which he has not previously disclosed for some reason, and usually he connects that to his already revealed will. Right? Now, when he does that, you can read this all through the Old Testament, he is giving you some of his secret will in the prophecy so that you'll pay attention because we're all really shallow and focused on like all of our immediate needs and what we want. But if you read the context of almost every prophecy in the Bible, he's giving a little of this to point you to this. Right? He'll say, look, here's the thing I'm going to cause to happen. Because you won't listen to what I've already told you. You won't do what I've already told you. You won't believe in me that I'll be with you. You don't do any of this. So I'm going to tell you some of this so that when it happens, you'll remember who I am and you'll actually believe in this. The revealed will. He's, see, even when God does reveal parts of his secret will to us in prophetic context, he's always pointing us back to believing his revealed will. That's always his emphasis, always his point. Because him telling you his secret will doesn't form you as a person. It doesn't make you a better lover of his creation, of his people, and of himself. It doesn't make you into the kind of being you were made to be, created in the image of God and renewed in Christ by his spirit. It just tells you stuff you want to know, and usually attempts you not to trust him, but to take that little piece of information he's given you, and then to manage it for yourself to get the idolatrous thing that you want. And that here's the thing about God. He doesn't want to give you rope to hang yourself. Right? Now, what that means is, is that what we're constantly doing— and, and listen, I have watched people— lose their faith over this. Just completely walk away from Christianity over a simple distinction problem that they refuse to accept, which is this. What we tend to do, and what devils will tempt you to do, what our flesh wants to do, is to flip the roles of these two things. Human beings are desperate to know God's secret will, and God wants them to do his revealed will. And so what we do is, we ignore God's revealed will. We expect him to take care of that. And what we want is his secret will for him to tell us that. And if he doesn't tell us that, he doesn't really love us. When he's saying, no, I do love you. And I love you enough to keep pushing you back to my revealed will until you actually grapple with it and you let it change you. Does that make sense? 
The flesh just wants secret will in prophecy so we can do what we want with it. And God is trying to move us here to really accept his revealed will. God won't reveal his secret will if you ignore his revealed will. God is not going to reveal to you his secret will, especially when you ignore his revealed will. Does that make sense? Now, there's a couple of obstacles in this passage that God is trying to knock down by doing this. The reason why he won't reveal his secret will so that he can focus us on his revealed will is so that we can no longer stray, so that he can really win our hearts, so that we'll really love him and know who we're meant to be. He wants all these goods for us. And what he's doing when he's doing this, he's trying to destroy three major problems, like obstacles that keep us from being the kind of people who don't stray, who don't defile ourselves and our sin and makes us, make us slaves of our own wickedness, and who don't harm everybody else in doing so, right? The first is, is that he has to confront the idols that we trust. He has to confront the idols that we trust. What does that mean? He's, one of the things he says in this passage is that we set up idols in our hearts. That's the first accusation that he makes. You guys have set up idols in your heart. Now, an idol is simply something that we trust instead of God. Now, it's important to recognize in the book of Isaiah, um, he explicitly uses the word heart multiple times because he's trying to push further than the simple, simple idea that there are these idols that exist in the ancient world that are like carved statues of gods that they believe in. But one of the things you need to realize is that we are just as much pagans as the ancient world. We're just a little bit less literal about it. Do you understand? Like, paganism is the idea that you can, you can, t instead of see God as a complete person, you can cut him up into pieces, and you can have gods that represent single things that you want. And then you can have relationships of devotion to the single things that you want, like, well, in the ancient world, success, fertility, good speaking, basically things that bring human success, right? And then you can worship that God, that is, be devoted to the thing you think will get it to you, and that's your mechanism of salvation. If I trust this thing, and I'm devoted to this thing, it will get me the thing that I want. Now, when I put it in those terms, it should be really obvious how easy it is for us to have idols, right? If we believe that if we work really hard, we'll be successful at work, we'll make plenty of money, we'll have job security, and we'll be successful. Right? And so, just like that, the general good of work becomes the god of work. Right? Or, if I have children, they will grow up and love me, and I will have these creatures that adore me and worship me, and I'll be so happy with this wonderful family that I have. And before you know it, Human children who are meant to be their own creatures, who have a relationship of love with you, but not a relationship of worship, that aren't meant to be bigger than just what they are, become idols instead of just children, right? And we hope in them, and we put pressure on them, and so on. Does that make sense? Almost anything that's good, not just evil, but like literally good things in our lives can easily be set up in our hearts in a place where we're mostly loyal to them as opposed to the holistic, complete God that has given those things and orders those things and works out good for those things. Right? And God is saying to these people, listen, you're setting up idols in your heart. You're setting up primary loyalties that are just higher than me. And, and that's got to get knocked down. I, I know you want to hear words from me. I know you want me to whisper into your heart. I know you want to feel like you have this relationship where I'm constantly talking to you. Listen, I've already talked to you. I've told you you can't have idols. I've told you there can't be anything in your life 
no ideology, no belief about what you have to do to be happy, no, no good thing that you've elevated higher than obeying all the other things that I've said, and no single thing that you focus on more than the holistic relationship of my total character. They're idols, and they're set up in your heart, and they order your devotion and loyalty, and you cannot believe and follow God when those are there. They must be torn down, and that is the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Or to put it in the negative, relative to wisdom, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Right? You and I have to recognize that if, if we want an interactive relationship with God, we start by interacting with what he's already spoken and shown, what he's already said to us. And let's start with the first thing he told us, which is that we can't have any gods before him. What he says, how he'll deal with this, is there's, o- there's, only, there's only a couple things he can say. The first thing he says is, I'm not going to answer you. Right? And then it becomes up to us what the second message we get is. He, give, he offers two second messages. One, he can say, listen, I'm going to tell you to repent. To tear down that idol and to turn to me. I'm going to say, that's my prophecy for you. My special, divine, prophetic word for just you today, speaking just into your life, is this. Repent. Tear down that idol. Throw it away. Trust in God totally. Namely, by understanding and putting your trust in the man, Jesus Christ, who died for your sins and was raised for your justification as the God-man, who loves you as the complete Lord and leader of all things, who has always known what you're really like and has still paid everything for you to draw you to himself and to walk with you and to lead you and to work all things for your eternal and everlasting good and to form you into the full human being you were always meant to be. That's the special prophetic word for you from the Spirit right now. I don't have to have the gift of prophecy to know that. The second thing he could say is, in in these other verses, he says, if you look at verse 7, he says, "When when any of the Israelites or a foreigner resident in Israel separate themselves from me, so that's a fourth characteristic. Do you see that? They separate themselves from me. They set up idols in their heart, and they put wicked assembly blocks before their face and then go to a prophet to inquire me. You see that? They separate themselves from God. So they're not even his follower. They don't even claim to be his. And they set up idols, and they put the stumbling block before these, and then they go to his prophet. (laughs) He's like, in that situation, he says, I will answer them myself. And this is the answer. The answer is not now, repent. The answer is now, I will set my face against them and make them an example and a byword. I will remove them from my people, and you will know that I'm the Lord. That is, that once you choose to go to the point where there's no redemptive opportunity for you, God is still going to use your life. Do you understand? And he's going to use your life by destroying it. Because if you won't live, if you decide you must die, you will go that route and you will not be turned— there is still a great service that you can offer God's creation. There is a service that you still can be used for in the larger portion of redemption, and that is that you could be completely destroyed so people can see what happens when you pursue this route unrepentantly. 
Those are the two options. And the reason why God says the second one is mainly to encourage us to take the first one. Does that make sense? Now, I gotta keep, I gotta keep rolling here quick. What that means is, is that idolatry has this sort of order of operations, right? The gods tell us what will happen, and then we will manage our lives and make it work. And you need to understand that's literally the opposite of the very nature of reality, right? The nature of reality is you trust God by obeying his revealed will. And you trust him in his complete divine providence, his godness, to work his own secret will that he wants to work, and in it you're good. That's the choice. You're one of those two people. You're either the person who wants the gods to tell you stuff so that then you can manage your own life, or you do the right thing for the right reason in worship and in faith, and you trust God to work it for his greater purposes that are bigger than you, and in it, your everlasting good, even if it means the destruction of your life on this earth, suffering, rejection, knowing that men can only kill the body, but God can give e eternal life and an eternal reward such that whatever we suffer here for the greater purpose of his secret will, that is the display of his glory to all people, will be worth it. Apostle Paul called the sufferings here light and momentary trials that aren't worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed. God will not reveal his secret will if you ignore his revealed will, right? The second thing is you, he has to confront the sin that's holding us back. When it says, it says, um, they put wicked stumbling blocks before their eyes. That's not an idiom we use very much, right? Another translation says hindrances of iniquity, which can mean um, one of two things. It can either mean the hindrance of iniquity is our shame for the guilt of what we've done. So the reason we won't come to God is because we've done iniquities, that is sins, and we feel really bad about it. And so we don't want to turn to God because we feel awful about ourselves. And what we need to realize is that we're already accepted, right? Now, it could mean that. It almost certainly doesn't. Instead, what it much more likely means is that we're actually clinging to a sin that's in our mind and that is before our faces that keeps us from actually believing God. Does that make sense? And that will always go along with idolatry, right? If, if we have an idol set up in our heart, then there is something we have to do in loyalty to that idol in order to keep serving it so that it will save us. And so there's, there's something that that loyalty requires that God demands we let go of. And what he's saying is, he's saying with the idols in your heart, there's that, that iniquity, that sin, that thing we have to hold on to becomes this thing that is in front of our face that blocks out everything else that we can see, and it is a hindrance to us. It's a stumbling block. You can't walk forward without falling on your face. It, it keeps us back and holds us back. And some of you, you know what I'm talking about in your own personal life. I mean, think about this. What would it feel—you know what it would feel like if you really gave emotionally, in, in, in the place of your will, you said yes to God, and you knew it meant 100%. You knew it meant everything. No matter what you were going to suffer, no matter what you had to face, and no matter what unhappiness you think you would be subject to because you gave up this thing that you're holding on to for dear life. And if, if you, you knew—like, if you said yes to God, you know there would be a peace, but you would also be accepting whatever future He caused you to walk into, and you'd have to face that day by day, and you'd have to face it with Him. And you won't—you won't do it. And you know it. It's in front of your face. You know what that thing is. There's this thing that you're holding, and it's right there. 
I can't work 10% less or I won't advance and it won't work. Right? I can't, I can't apologize to my kids because then they'll, they'll walk all over me even when I'm wrong. Right? I can't give up these nice vacations. I grew up poor and this is what it means to be successful and I deserve these and I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna be generous in a way that stops that. I need my personal time. I'm not going to volunteer in this thing or let that person in my life who's going to make my life more difficult. I need, right? I need, I need, I need, I need this ideology so I know I'm a good person. I need this thing I can say about myself so that it makes sense of my incredibly complicated life that's destroying my soul and I don't know what to do and I feel so depressed. So I need this, this thing because I've never really learned what God really says about any of this stuff. Not at a really deep level, and this seems to make my life work. So I'm going to add this to Christianity, and the, the two will have to work together, or I'm going to get rid of Jesus. Like, it's, it's got to work. Right? Like, there's, listen, every idol will produce a stumbling block, at least one, if not multiple ones. And there it sits before your eyes. And if I tell you, give everything to Jesus, give everything, hold nothing back, and give yourself entirely to him. If it means martyrdom, if it means the loss of your good name, if it means the loss of your, your dreams, whatever those are, no matter what it is, nothing, nothing is worth not selling to purchase the great hidden treasure. Nothing. Nothing is worth holding you back. Nothing is worth diminishing your relationship. Nothing is worth not experiencing everything he's had for you. Nothing is worth the pain of the healing he will bring if you let him deal with the worst parts of your life. Nothing is worth that. Nothing is worth it. Because here's the thing. When we lie to someone who loves us, intimacy is impossible. And for persons, divine image bearing persons, intimacy between fellows or persons, whether a friendship or lover or natural affection within families, real intimacy, seeing the soul of each other and walking in true closeness is the greatest gift. And any stumbling block stands in the midst of that relationship to function like it should, destroys the possibility of intimacy to keep the paltry sawdust of the thing we believe we must keep. Let it go! You gotta let it go. God's word is, I'm not gonna tell you a special thing. You're praying to me at night and you're asking me to like reveal something to you or tell you some kind of secret or like give you another way. There's no other way. I'm referring you back to what I've already said, which is repent and trust me, and find out what I've really said, and become my student, and walk with me in every way you know to be obedient, and let the peace of God work in your understanding, and allow yourself to be made mature in me, and give yourself entirely in faith, and tear down the idol, and throw the stumbling block behind you, and turn to me, and you'll live. Right? Let me read you just a couple examples of like the logic here, right? To inquire of God without getting rid of the hindrance, the, sin, the, the hindering sin, is like—imagine this. Imagine these things. These are just like examples. It's like a bulimic patient that wants something to treat the acidity of her stomach contents so that her chronic vomiting won't corrode her esophagus and kill her. It's like the adulterer that wants advice about how to keep his wife from finding about, out about his mistresses so that he can have a good marriage. It's like the husband that wants me to tell him how to get his frustrated wife to submit to his leadership so that he can be a controlling and selfish husband. 
It's like the politician asking how he can create an economic boom while he's funneling all the productive money to his buddies and donors. Right? It's, it's wanting a good that can never happen in the presence of the evil you won't let go. That's why God can't speak a special word to you other than let it go. I'm sorry we're such boring creatures. <laughs> oh, every time I pray, I'm like, God, I need a special. He's like, you don't need a special anything. Just go back to the thing that you just won't do. And then if I can somehow get to emotional, okay, okay. It just goes. It just, a lot of that anxiety just goes away. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to do the thing. I know it's going to hurt. I'm going to do the thing. Okay. Let me give you a couple practical examples of this in like real life, okay? Asking God for a strong faith, but not doing the things that build strong faith, but doing the things that weaken strong faith. So you pray to God, God, I want, please give me the special work of strong faith, but I'm not going to read your word and I'm going to watch YouTube videos all day long. You, Asking God for his joy, but not learning about his glory, his beauty, thanking him habitually and sincerely, worshiping him adoringly and growing in humility. Asking God for a spouse, but not wanting to know what may be inhibiting it and be un being unwilling to deal with that. Asking God to lead someone to Christ, but being selfish in our relationships with them and treating non-Christians like a threat to our faith. Asking God to help us make more money, but not wanting to work hard to acquire new skills or find ways to bring more values to the people who are our customers. Asking God for the strength of the virtues of godliness while we cling to all the weakening paths of worldliness. Asking God to help us find our real self while using inhuman anti-biblical ideologies to understand ourselves in the world. Asking God to help us with our loneliness while holding on to the comforts of isolation, the self-justification of criticism, and the fleshly comforts of irritability. Asking God to help our society, or at least the church, not be so divided and hostile, but holding on to views that are sexist and racist, or justifying our identity politics loyalties that increase tribalism. Asking God to fill the church with young people, but holding on to being— things being just the way we like them, or unproductively criticizing the young and not serving them in love. Asking God to give us leaders that aren't worn out, but holding on to the right to give sparingly, to serve meagerly, and yet to criticize them freely. Asking God to teach us the truth from his word while holding on to the idea that the Bible is boring or difficult and that anything that requires more than five minutes concentration must not be worth pursuing. Asking God to give us good relationships with our kids while holding on to the right to allow the internet to raise them, not to fight the key battles for their heart, and to have all kinds of hobbies that don't include them. I wrote that one for myself. Asking God to teach our kids humility while holding on to our pride when we're obviously wrong, rarely apologizing, and assuming that we know everything that they're about to say without listening to them. Do you understand? There is no special word from God for the iniquities that we hold as stumbling blocks for our hearts other than letting them go. In any word God would speak to you other than that, you would use his line to hang yourself as a way to try to get out, which is exactly what the third thing is, right? Which is, sorry, which is that he has to confront the lies that we prefer to the truth, right? The third thing is, like, I'm going to kill these other prophets. So he says, he's like, listen, if any prophet gives you a word, that means that they're as apostate as you are, and I'm going to have to kill them because 
the only way you're ever going to believe the truth is if you don't believe lies, and you love believing lies. Remember from chapter 13? He's talking about the destruction of the lying prophets, and in it he says to those lying prophets, by lying to my people who listen to lies, you've killed those who should, should not have died and spared those who should not have lived, right? He's saying, you're a liar, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna judge you, but listen, the truth about my people is that they love to listen to lies. You see, you and I believe that, like, we're, like, serious Christians. Like, we're serious. We're, like, Bible Christians. We're serious Christians, right? Like, you are. Okay, you are. And I am, I am too. But listen, we're human beings. We adore flattery. We adore it. We adore power. We adore money. We adore ease. We adore these things. And we adore much more than that. And anybody who will give them to us, or even promise them emptily to us, we will believe. Much faster than we thought, much quicker than we dreamed. And so God says, what I'm going to do is, if you take the role of a prophet, when what my people need to hear is, there's no special message for you. <laughs> you have to repent and tear down the idol in your heart and throw behind you the stumbling block of the sin that you're clinging to. That is the only way forward. And if you do that, I can work everything for your good. I can bring what the Bible calls blessing, because you are growing. You are becoming the you you're meant to be. What you're doing goes along with what I'm trying to do in my secret will. I can work with this. I can work this for good. No matter how difficult things are, I can work it for good. But if you reject me, reject what I've told you, put up idols in your heart, you're working against me, and I can't work that for your ultimate good because you're choosing to kill yourself. So I can't, I can't do anything with that. Right? And so I've heard a lot of Christians say in, in modern moments that the prophetic ministry in the church, when we, and, and I think that this could also be said of teaching in the church. So giving people biblical advice. Because both are coming from divine authorities, right? If I believe God said something in my heart for you and I share it with you, right? I'm speaking with like, what I think is a certain kind of like divine word, which you're going to naturally take with more authority. But if I say, look, the Bible says this, but I'm speaking into a situation in your life, I'm still speaking with a certain kind of divine authority that people are more prone to listen to. And so I think you should be similarly careful. Now, some people have said, listen, prophecies in the church, are, it says, anybody who prophesies in First Corinthians, this is a New Testament, speaks to men for their strengthening, encouragement, and comfort. So if you're going to give somebody like a word for their life, it should be positive. It's for their strengthening, encouragement, and comfort. So if you bear God's message, that's it. Those are your options. They're all positive. Now, that is not true. Okay? Now, it's, it's partly true, and operating that way in churches has stopped some abuses, so that's good. But like, you can't just throw out the whole Old Testament and just be like, well, prophecy is just totally different in the New Testament. Right? If you look at Hebrews 12, 5 and 13, 22, which use this word for encouragement, which can also be translated exhortation, one of them is used in the context of when our parents, when our fathers disciplined us, and it was terrible, they were encouraging us. <laughs> that is, they were giving us a message that was really difficult, really hard, sometimes really painful. But now, as we're adults, we realize that they were right, and it was for our own good, and it helped set us back on the right path if we listened to them. So it was for our encouragement. It was for our good, and it ultimately has brought us an enormous amount of comfort. 
but it wasn't comforting at the time. And that word is used in the Old Testament, translated in the, in the Septuagint, to refer to prophetic words in the Old Testament that were not particularly positive. And the reason for that is because God's dynamic related to this is still the same. So what that means is, is that if we're going to speak to other people for God in any way, in any capacity, especially prophetically, if you believe you have that gift, or are receiving something for the Lord for somebody else in a particular opportunity, the first rule of prophecy is don't lead people away from God in God's name. We want to comfort people, but listen. You guys listen to me. If what they want for their comfort is the affirmation of the idols in their hearts and the belief that they can keep the stumbling block of their sin, you are killing them. Listen, you guys, I would love to just remake up our religion for this moment. Okay, like there's a part of me that would love for me to be like, do whatever you want. Like if that makes you happy and let's all be individual expressivists and like, like we'll just accept everybody no matter what they do and how they kill each other. Like it'll be cool and we'll like pick five or six moral things that aren't even hard, that won't affect your life, that because you believe in them, you can be a good person and then you can do whatever you want outside of that. And like, it'll be awesome. Like there's part of me that would like go for that because it would be so much easier and you, and I might be richer. Like this not the religion of God. That is not the way of Christ. It is not the purpose of the gospel. It is not the meaning of our existence. It is false. And we believe it because we listen to lies. We love flattery. We want things to be easy. We don't want to live in the way of the cross and take up our cross and follow Jesus to our deaths. We don't want the difficulty. We want things to be easy. We don't want the conflict. Especially if we're young and we're confused and we're struggling. But listen, you got to ask yourself, is there a 50,000 year future in this? You got to ask yourself that question. Whatever you're believing, whatever you're doing, whatever you're choosing, is there a 50,000 year future in this? Is there? Because the horrible thing that God wants is to give you the eternal beauties of his own glory forever. Poor you and me. You know what I mean? And for you to become the divine image-bearing thing, God small g in the Bible, that you are meant to be in him, glorified, fully human, capable of love, a doer of justice, Like, that's God's desire for you. And so, I don't have a special word for you. And God often doesn't have a special word for us because he has spoken a beautiful word. Which is, if you will repent and believe, if you will throw off the idol you've set up in your heart, if you will throw from in front of your face behind you, that that stumbling block, that thing you don't think you can live without, you can. You can live eternally with joy without it. If you will throw that behind you, he has prepared a Christ for you, one who has died for your iniquities, one who is more beautiful than your idols and more complete, one who has already walked the way you must walk. Remember, Hebrews 12 says, like Jesus, throw off the sin that so easily entangles and the things that will get in your way. 
Get rid of that stuff so you can run with perseverance the race marked out for you and follow Jesus who's already done it and is doing it that you can follow and see how to follow. He's done all of it for you. You have to be brave enough, honest enough, and desirous enough, passionate enough to choose him today. And this passage, friends, is not for non-Christians. It's for them too. But it is addressed to believers who have pledged ourselves to have a clean conscience before God to trust him. But over time have complained and wanted the clairvoyant special will of God for him to tell us stuff so that we can manage our lives rather than to accept the beauty that if we follow him in ways we could never understand, he is every day working for our good. Which is primarily our godliness, our sonship, our daughtership in him. The main thing he's working is making us. And he can never make us into something that looks like him when all of our concentration is on the detestable idol we've set up in our heart. Either you make yourself a gargoyle, a monster, or you look on the face of the radiant Christ and be made an image bearer. That is the special prophetic word for you. That is the that is the will that was secret from the angels, but has been revealed in his Christ. Believe it again today. Believe it completely today. Right now. Pray as we sing these songs. Like pray that God would help you follow him, that you would you wouldn't pick the idol back up, that you would that you would get around people who want the same things, that you would that you would walk with God and that he would keep you like a perfect shepherd and that no one, not even your own misgivings would be able to snatch you out of his hand. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would take um, this truth in Ezekiel 14 and you'd help apply it to us. We know that in this time, this is a particularly dire moment, which is why you speak of killing people. You've been struggling with them for more than 400 years and this is a special breaking moment. But we know that the principle of this the principle of the word you want to speak to us is still the same. None of that has changed. These, these could have been the very words of Jesus. We pray that in this moment, in this day, in this city, at this time, you would help us to grapple with these truths, that you would help us to believe. Holy Spirit, we invite you to help us. We, help, we pray that mainly you'd help us to overcome the fear of letting go of our idols and the hindrances that we're holding on to. And let us follow Jesus free of those encumbrances. In Jesus' name, amen.